Good morning. Today we're going to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. But before we, we get there, before we do, I want you to turn with me to the best chapter in the Bible. Now, if you have been here the last six Sundays, you know, of course, I am referring to Romans chapter 8, the best chapter in the Bible. Have I convinced you? Yes. Still one or two doubters? No. Well, I have nine sermons to go, including this one. I'm not joking. I have nine sermons to go beside this one. So if there are still any doubters out there, my goal is to convert you yet. That this is indeed, if not the best, certainly numbered among the best chapters in the Bible. It contains numerous themes. We've seen that. When we began, way back in verse 1, I asked you to keep three overarching themes in view. Uh, The first overarching, all-encompassing theme was the glory of the triune God. As Christians, we are Trinitarians. As Christians, we were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We believe there is only one God, the one true living God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-essential. We behold the glory of God triune in this chapter. You just glance with me for a moment back to verses 3 and 4. And look with me at what Paul says there. For God, that is the Father, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so there you have it. Father, son, spirit working in perfect unity and cooperation to secure the salvation of his people. You look again, for example, at verse 9, what Paul says there. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. One true living God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. You look just one more time at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, the Father. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is a precious doctrine. It is a fundamental doctrine. One God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here is what is so glorious about it. Simply this. The Father, Son, and Spirit know each other. It's going to become very evident in the verses we're going to look at this morning. They actually communicate with each other. They know each other. They love each other and rejoice in each other. You put those three together, God's knowing himself, God's loving himself, and God rejoicing in and over himself. Those three constitute the glory of God. And here's the wonder of wonders. God triune extends this glory to sinners so that we might know him, we might love him, and we might rejoice and delight in him. Oh, the glory of God triune. The second overarching theme was this, the ministry specifically of the Holy Spirit. You go through this chapter from start to finish, and you will find 21 expressed references to the Holy Spirit. There are more references in this chapter to the Spirit of God than in any other chapter in the Bible. If you want to know the Holy Spirit, go to this chapter. If you want to know who the Holy Spirit is, go to this chapter. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit does, you guessed it, go to this chapter. And here we've seen that we live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We kill, mortify sin by the Spirit. We cry by the Spirit. We groan by the Spirit. And today we're going to see that we pray by the Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And the third all-encompassing theme is this. The efficacy. I love that word. I could just say the power of the gospel. It doesn't sound quite the same, does it? The efficacy of the gospel. Now, this chapter begins on what note? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This chapter ends on what note? No, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. Paul takes us on a tremendous journey in these verses from trial and suffering to peace and renewal in the new heavens and the new earth. I suggested to you six weeks ago, and I'm going to suggest to you again, that this is the chapter you want when you are collapsing under the weight of your sin. Get to this chapter when you are collapsing under the weight, the burden of your sin. This is the chapter you want when you are melting in the fire of affliction, trouble all around, no light, proverbially speaking, at the end of the tunnel. This is the chapter you want. This is the chapter you want when bearing the weight of sorrow, whatever the cause. And this is the chapter you want when expiring upon your deathbed. Three tremendous overarching themes, the glory of the triune God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the efficacy of the gospel. No condemnation, no separation, 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where are we? Do you remember? Verse 26. We have covered the first 25 verses. Paul begins the chapter with the doctrine of justification, a change in our legal status, standing in God's sight, that through faith we're made one with Christ, therefore we're free from condemnation. He moves on to the doctrine of sanctification, that not only does God change our legal status, but he begins to change us. He begins to renew us in the image and the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus. And then Paul waxes eloquent on sanctification and what it means for us by the Spirit's help, by God's grace to put to death the deeds, the sins of the body. And then he moves on from there. And he reminds us that those who put to death the deeds of the body are those who are led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are indeed the sons of God. And he enumerates all of those tremendous privileges of sonship. And then he comes in verse 17, really at the end of it, to a perplexing problem. And he introduces this subject of suffering. And he reminds us that this, again, proverbially speaking, that this life is not a bed of roses for the Christian. That we're caught in this tension of now and not yet. We're caught in this tension of only being partly saved. Yes, we're saved positionally in the Lord Jesus. It's all ours. But we have not yet entered into our reward. We have not yet entered into the inheritance. And this journey is paved, this pathway is paved with suffering. The way to the crown is the cross. It is always the cross. But Paul doesn't just throw that out there. He wants to give us a little shot in the arm. He wants to give us a great deal of encouragement. And basically what he does from the 18th verse through more or less to the 30th verse is he gives us three encouraging words. I'm suffering. I know you're suffering. I realize you have suffered. And we don't know what lies up ahead around the corner. But we know that living in this fallen world as a child of God, there are going to be unpleasant days. There are going to be difficult circumstances. And in effect, Paul is saying this. Here are three things I want you to grasp. Three things. The first thing is the hope of glory. That begins in verse 18 all the way through to verse 25. The second thing is the power of prayer. This morning's text verses 26 and 27. And the third thing, verses 28 through 30, is the sovereignty of God. Get those three firmly burned upon your mind and upon your soul, upon your heart. May they be implanted deep within you, the hope of glory, the power of prayer. What I mean by that isn't what most people mean by that. More on that later. And the sovereignty of God. That is his theme, those three principal themes, really, from verse 18 through to verse 30. And so last Sunday, we looked at the first encouraging word, the hope of glory. He says in the 18th verse, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, whatever they may be, are not worth comparing with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. He places that statement in a context, in a context, and he takes us on this journey and, and, and he really gets us up, if you like, up high to get a view of history. And, and he considers history from creation's vantage point. And he speaks of past subjection. At the time of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, God subjected all creation to futility, to vanity. That doesn't mean this world is a gar garbage can. This world isn't a garbage can. This world is beautiful. This world is still stunning in its beauty. And this world still oozes God's common grace everywhere we look if we care to look. Paul's not saying this world is a garbage can. Paul is simply saying this, that now active in this world are the principles of death and decay. That these are now reigning principles in this world, in the entire created order. It's not the way it was prior to the fall. God has subjected, as a result of Adam's sin, Eve's sin, all of creation to futility, past subjection. But then he drives us where? To future liberation. And he tells us a day is coming. A day is coming when creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. There is a new heavens and a new earth, a new cosmos, a new creation coming from which sin and all of its consequences will be vanquished. And there will be a tremendous renovation, if you like, renewal of all creation. And then he comes back to the present. I'm taking you to the past. I've forced you to look at the future. Now the present. Until then, creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth. That's what he says. You read the text. Like a woman in childbirth. It's painful. But the pains and the cries, the groaning is anticipatory. Creation knows something is coming, something better. And then Paul applies it to us similarly. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what do we do? We do three things. We groan inwardly, right there in verse 23. We wait eagerly, right there in verse 23. And we wait, or we hope, if you like, expectantly, patiently, in verses 24 and 25. Now we come to today's text. All of that was by way of review. And look at the very first word in verse 26. Likewise, in other words, I'm now going to give you another help. I raised the subject of suffering way back in verse 17. I've given you help number one, the hope of glory. Oh, behold it and believe it and live accordingly. Now I'm going to give you help number two, the power of prayer. And listen carefully to what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, okay, here's another help. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that is God the Father, who searches hearts, our hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here is the second help, the second encouraging word. 
the power of prayer. What makes prayer powerful? Not just that a large group of people happen to congregate in a room somewhere and really, 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 really believe something and think that if they can just get enough people together and pray earnestly enough, God will hear them. That is not the, the power of prayer. That is misguided. The power of prayer resides in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of prayer is the power of God. And what Paul is teaching in this text is simply this. When we pray by the Spirit in two specific ways, we see God's power at work. The first way is this. The Spirit gives assistance in our prayers. That's his point in verse 26. The second point is this. The Spirit ensures the acceptance of our prayers. That's his point in verse 27. Two points unfolding the power of prayer. Look at them carefully with me. Again, here's point number one. The Spirit gives assistance in our prayers. 26th verse. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There are two little points in here that we must get. The first is this. We're weak. Let me state that slightly different, slightly different terms to make sure you're getting it. You are a weakling. That's what Paul is saying. I am a weakling. We are weak. Why? Look at the text. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for... So here's the origin or the cause of our weakness. We do not know. We're clueless. Absolutely clueless is what he is saying. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. We're stuck in this journey, living of the t this, with this tension of being in two ages between the old creation and the new creation, the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. Again, let me say it, we are only partly saved. Yes, we are saved in Christ. It is all ours in Christ. It is unchangeable. There is no nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is true. But we have not yet inherited the reward. It's not ours yet. It is ours by right. But we have not yet entered into the enjoyment of it. And here we are now living in this world, a fallen world, still under the consequences of the old creation, belonging to a new creation, and we're looking ahead to it with longing and with yearning. We know what the Bible says. We know what is held out to us. And there we look. And in the present, we suffer. And we go through experiences and we try to understand these experiences and put them in this place of what God is doing overall. But more often than not, dare I say, we have absolutely no clue what God is doing. We like to think we do. We all think we're God's privy counselors, right? We're part of the team. He consults us and we consult with him. Well, certainly does not consult with us. And he actually chooses to reveal very, 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 very little to you and me. Very little. And here we are trying to make sense of it. And what does it lead to? 
weakness. Why? Because, you know, I really don't know what to pray for as I ought. You getting this? Let me give you five scenarios. Here's scenario number one. A father's unconverted daughter is making an absolute mess of her life. All right? She refuses to listen to him or anyone else for that matter. She is absolutely convinced she knows everything. And everyone else is a hypocrite. She doesn't realize she's the biggest hypocrite walking. But everyone else, no one has anything worth saying. She makes bad choice after bad choice. And this father watches helplessly as she plunges herself into an ever-deepening and ever-widening pit of self-destructive behavior. What is God doing? This father is weak. He does not know what to pray for. Scenario number two. A wife's dream of a happy marriage evaporates in an instant as she discovers her husband's infidelity. They've been married 14 years. How is she going to cope with the betrayal? How is she going to handle the rejection? How is she going to deal with the uncertainty? What kind of an impact will this have on their children? What is God doing? The wife is weak. She does not know what to pray for. Scenario number three. A husband sits quietly beside his wife's hospital bed as she breathes her last. Their dreams of growing old together left in a crushed and crumpled heap on the ground. What now? There are two small children at home. He's gripped with crushing fear and overwhelming grief. What's he going to do? How's he going to cope? What is God doing? This husband is weak. He does not know what to pray for. Scenario number four. A man loses his job and faces an uncertain future. How's he going to provide for his family? How is he going to cover his son's medical expenses? How is he going to cover his daughter's college tuition? How is he going to start over at 53 years of age? What was the point of the last 30 years of loyalty? What is God doing? This man is weak. He does not know what to pray for. Scenario number five. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but here's a fifth one. A woman realizes she's about to lose everything for Christ's sake. Everything. She lives in an environment increasingly hostile to Christianity. She has no advocate. She has no way of defending herself. She fears for her life. She fears for her loved ones. She's surrounded by injustice. What is God doing? This woman is weak. She doesn't know what to pray for. What is God's will in this? Well, we know his revealed will for us. He gives us in the good book, right? We're to obey him. We're to glorify him. We're to honor him. And we have some idea of what we're to pray for in accordance with the Lord's prayer. And we're to pray for patience and perseverance in these things. But as God unfolds his sovereign will of decree in this world and in our lives and from our limited vantage point, it makes no sense at all. I know what's coming in verse 28 and I actually have this secret loathing of what's coming in verse 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because you know, I just don't see it. 
I don't see the good. My friends, that is because we are weak. That is weak. We are weak. We do not see the unfolding of God's secret will, His sovereign will, His will of decree for us. More often than not, it is hidden from view. We are weak. Why? Because we do simply do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's point number one. We're weak. Point number two is what? Again, you're all staring at me. Point number two is what in the verse? The Spirit helps. Right? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That word help, very, very interesting. It has the idea, it conveys the idea of carrying a heavy load. We've all done that at some point or another. I recall coming up on 15 years ago, uh, my in-laws giving us a, a piano. Great gift, no problem with that. I grabbed a, a friend of mine, and uh, I don't know what I was thinking. Well, here's what I was thinking, that the two of us would be able to drive down there and load this piano on the truck and bring it back and get it into our home. Clueless. We got there, and sure enough, we were able to get the piano to the front door because there were wheels on the bottom of it. Front door, there are four steps. Then you've got to lift it up into the truck. So I'm at one end, my friend is at the other end, and this thing isn't going anywhere. You want to know what happened? This is just unbelievable to this day. There's a man walking by, early 50s. He's five foot two both ways. I mean, five foot two high, five foot two wide, just this barrel chest. And he walks over. You know what he does for a living? He moves pianos. So he grabs the end, the one end with one arm. He says, you two young guys, get at that other end. Go, get at the other end. Up he lifted that thing, and there we are just sort of barely getting our end as we made it down the stairs, over the truck, and up and in. That's the idea here. We're barely holding on to our end for dear life. And along comes the Spirit of God, and He picks up the other end and basically carries the whole load, carries us with Him. He helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we uh, How specifically does He help us? It's right there in the rest of the verse. He Himself, it's not something we do, it's He Himself, so emphasis, intercedes, it's intercessory prayer for us, how? With groanings too deep for words. Please, please, please notice this. Paul does not say that the Spirit comes along and removes our weakness. doesn't say that. Our weakness doesn't go, along, go away. Our weakness remains. What does the Spirit do? He comes along, carries us through our weakness, and with these groanings, imperceptible groanings, too deep for words, he actually intercedes on our behalf. And so you know what basically Paul is saying is simply this. The Spirit of God makes us intelligible to God. I'm, I'm so thankful for that, I'll tell you. I pray he's making me intelligible right now. The Spirit of God makes us intelligible. I think of another incident years ago, a couple decades ago now, playing, I think it was volleyball in a church building, and we were done, and we came out into sort of the, the, the foyer of the, of the church, and there were three or four steps there, and a young woman, her name was Kate, maybe in her early 20s, I don't know how she did it, but she managed to trip down these three or four steps, pop, pop, you heard a couple things break on her way down, and there she was in just some crumpled heap at the base of those stairs. 
Another young woman, or maybe it was a young man, I can't remember now, I do remember this. He quickly grabbed the phone, 911. You've reached 911, what is your emergency, sir? He couldn't get two words out. Just babbling. He, he was just overcome with the moment. There she was crying out in pain. He, he forgot where he was. He forgot how to speak. The guy standing beside him grabbed the phone out of his hands. Here's where we are. Here's where we need. Here's the situation. Get on it. It was done. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Unintelligible are we at times because we don't know what to pray for. We're not in the know. We're clueless as to God's will and how he's going to work this out and what he's doing in the big picture and the long term. But here is the comfort. Here is the encouragement. The spirit helps and he makes, he makes his groanings, groanings perhaps that we participate in, but he makes this perceptible. He makes this intelligible to God. And now Paul's second point is this as we move into verse 27. Not only does the spirit make, assist us in our prayers, but he makes or ensures the acceptance of our prayers. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts. So God the Father searches your heart as you pray. What else does he do? He knows what is the mind of the Spirit. It's wonderful truth, my friends. God is triune. He is a relational Oh, please, please, please. He is a relational being. He is a God who is in an eternal relationship with himself, Father, Son, Spirit. And the wonder of the gospel is this. He brings us, Father, Son, and Spirit, into that relationship whereby we become participants in that mutual love, that mutual knowledge, that mutual delight and rejoicing. And so here we have the Father and Spirit. The Father, yes, searches our hearts. He knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We don't know the will of God so often. We don't know what we're supposed to pray for. We are weak. Oh, but this great help that comes ensuring the acceptance of our prayers, even when we simply groan, even when we simply acknowledge uh, that this, this situation is, defies understanding, even when we are brought to an end of ourselves and all we can do is cry out, Call out to God, help me. We can't put, add anything to it. We can't provide any explanation. We're unclear as to what God is doing or how he's going to help or what assistance he provides or what his overarching plan is. Oh, what an encouragement to know that at those moments, the spirit of God is actually making that groaning, that cry, that call intelligible to God and is actually infusing it with tremendous meaning and significance. And the Father who is searching our hearts actually hears, he knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is making that groaning intelligible whereby we are now actually praying by the Spirit according to the will of God without even, my friend, you realizing it. One amen, please. That is wonderful. I just simply, un un that's mind-boggling. That we become participants in this divine dialogue between the three persons of the Trinity. And what is this will of God? This comes to the third help that's coming in verses 28 through 30. 
And there Paul is going to unpack for us what? The golden chain of salvation. And there in that golden chain of salvation, five inseparable, indivisible links. He's going to take us from the past to the future. He's going to begin with election. He's going to move to predestination. He's going to come to effectual calling. He's going to come to justification. Then he's going to end with glorification. And here is the gospel. Here is what God is doing in the lives of his people from past, even before the foundation of the world. Fast forward into the new heavens and the new earth, their glorification. God has this plan to conform his people, his adopted sons, his adopted children into the very likeness of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit knows the will of God. And the Spirit knows exactly how every detail, even the most perplexing details and circumstances in life, serve that ultimate purpose. We don't see it. Oh, we don't get it at all. Here, my friend, you don't have to see it. You really don't. You don't even have to understand. You don't always have to be able to answer the question, why? No, you don't. You're still thinking in the back of the head, you think you do. You do not have to be able to answer that question, why? All you have to know is who? That God is working in us to accomplish his plans and purposes for us. And again, even when we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, not knowing how to pray, not knowing how this fits with God's will, not knowing how this serves God's purposes, that there is this divine dialogue. And even my ignorance and my simple guttural groaning, the Spirit transforms it, makes it intelligible, whereby the Father searching my heart hears a prayer in accordance with His will because it's a prayer uttered according to the Spirit. Now, if you're not encouraged enough, that was my goal, incidentally, this morning, just to encourage you. If you're not encouraged enough, let me try to bring that all to a head by suggesting to you four ways in which you should be encouraged on the basis of Romans 8, 26 and 27. Here we go. Number one, you, we should be encouraged that God does not expect us to know his will in every circumstance. He doesn't expect us to know his will. In every circumstance. His revealed will. Is that we obey him. We honor him. We glorify him. But we do not need to know his secret will. We are never called to investigate into his secret will. We do not have to know. Everything. That should just be a sense of relief. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and figure out in every situation what God is doing. I'm not called to do that. Oh, how encouraging that is. Secondly, we should be encouraged that the Spirit of God intercedes for us in the midst of our weakness. This doesn't mean we don't pray. It means he makes even our inaudible prayers intelligible. Thirdly, we should be encouraged that as God searches our hearts, he hears perfect, perfect prayer requests in our groaning. Why? Because the Holy Spirit intercedes according to the will of God 
And the Holy Spirit knows God's will in every circumstance. The fourth encouraging word. We ought to be encouraged that God answers these prayers, accomplishing in the words of Ephesians 3.20, far more than we could ever ask or think. Great concluding word from William Plummer. It's found at the top of the sermon notes. Here it is just before we pray. By the work of the Holy Spirit, a heart without words may bring down the blessing of God. Amen. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks directly into our lives. It informs our minds, our judgments, and it most certainly shapes our hearts, our aspirations, our dreams, and our affections. And we pray that as your word has gone forth this day, not only here, but throughout Glen Rose, throughout this state, throughout the globe, that as your spirit has accompanied it, he has done so in power, building up your people, advancing your kingdom. And may it truly resound for the eternal glory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.